Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about biblical, healthy, and evidence-based advice for your sex and marriage. I am usually joined by my daughter, Rebecca, but for this, the very last podcast of the year, I actually have some things that I want to say on my own, so I'll be doing that in a little bit. But first, I have a guest on that I really want you to hear her story. Rachel Perry wrote to me after she read The Great Sex Rescue to tell me that what we said about vaginismus really touched her because she had had a horrific journey with vaginismus. She had found healing and she recovered, but it was only in reading The Great Sex Rescue that she started to understand some of the why behind her struggle with vaginismus. And she wrote her story up for me. I loved it so much that I asked if she um, would publish it on her blog and she did. And I linked to it yesterday so that you all could read it. And today I wanted to bring her on just to talk about what it was like having this thing that you didn't even have a word for and getting help, especially when no one seemed to know what to do and what it was like to live for so long with this without any help. So here is Rachel bringing us her story. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Rachel Perry. Um, she is a reader. She has been married for almost 15 years, and she has a story that I think you really need to hear. So Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And now we connected because... You read Great Sex Rescue and you read a lot of what I wrote. And then you sent me a lovely email about your story with vaginismus. Yes. Which is a word that I am very passionate about teaching people what it is. So do you want to describe what it is? Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Well, vaginismus, um, there is a range, but for me with primary vaginismus, that refers to difficulty with sex ranging from severe pain, which can um, be chronic ongoing pain, all the way up to an inability to achieve penetration of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be devastating, as you well know. Truly. So let's just set the stage for our, our listeners. So you, when, when you were growing up, you were evangelical, heard all the same messages about sex. So describe, describe what getting married was like. So you waited for your marriage. Yes. So I waited for my marriage. We met, um, at a very conservative Bible Institute. I was very young. He was very young. We both had had that emphasis though. My case was more extreme. I would say Mm -hmm. as far as the focus on purity. So it was a big deal growing up for both of us to wait until marriage and everything else that comes with that. So going into our marriage, we had biblical principles for dating. We weren't going to kiss until we were engaged. You know, there was a lot of emphasis. And even that we, a lot of our friends weren't going to kiss until their wedding day. So there, so you were the liberal ones. You were the liberal ones. (laughs) Yes. Out there with a little peck, you know, oh my. Scandalous. So going into marriage, there, I think, were two layers. There was the top layer, which is what I was conscious of. I'm excited to be married. I'm ready to step over this threshold with him. I trust him. I was expectant, hopeful, joyful, all of the right feelings going into marrying the love of your life. Mm-hmm. Beneath that, which I have a lot of clarity on this now, but did had no awareness of this level then, there was tremendous fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important in understanding vaginismus to understand that I had no awareness of that fear. I was right. not, you know, those conversations with friends even the conversations we had in the premarital counseling we did with our pastor, we talked about sex. I was fine with talking about sex. I felt all the right things with my husband. There was all the, the normal, you know, boundary pushing as we came closer to the wedding. Um, There was no conscious fear going into marriage about sex, but there was some very, there were undercurrents that were really powerful that were going to show up. 
That's exactly like my story. I feel like I'm hearing myself talk. So, okay. <laughs> so then, so then you get married and what, what happens on your honeymoon? You know, as quickly as the first night, it was apparent that there was, there was a problem. I, um, at first chalked it up to figuring things out. We had certainly gotten advice that it said, Oh, you know, don't panic if it takes a little while to figure things out. And we had read some books and different things that had prepared us a little bit for that, not to be, not to have ridiculous expectations for night number one. Um, but then we had a two week honeymoon. It became apparent as the days wore on that there was a problem. I couldn't get past that point. And, um, I had no framework or context to understand what it was, even that that was a thing that happened to people. I was really certain I was the first person ever, you know? Mm -hmm. So it just, it seemed like this unthinkable thing that I needed to fix and figure out as soon as possible. I, I had that feeling as early as week one of the honeymoon. Mm-hmm. I remember feeling that too. It's like everybody else has sex. Like I'd never heard of anyone who couldn't, who, who it hurt. And, right. And so, and, and I didn't have a word for it. How long did it take you to have a word for it? That's a good question. I'll have to think about that for a second. So to have a word for it, the word vaginismus was spoken within those first few months but Mm -hmm. it was a warning to me that I was going to develop vaginismus if I didn't stop it was what the doctor told me um, because it was in my head. Exactly. Stop whatever (laughs) I was doing to prevent having sex with my husband, whom I loved, whom I wanted to have sex with. Mm -hmm. But so that word came up, but for me to actually have a name for what I was experiencing, uh, I was told vulvodynia with levator spasms, which is Mm -hmm. vaginismus. Um, about two years later. Okay. So it was a, it was a ways in. And so how, what ha- so you go home from your honeymoon, how long before you, you t- sought medical treatment? I made an appointment right away. And when I went, I had theory, you know, I, I had sort of developed this theory that I had a really tough hymen or I had something going on anatomically Mm-hmm. And so I believe I went into the appointment saying that I don't remember exactly what the conversation was now, but she said, we're going to do an exam under anesthesia. We're going to figure out what is going on. So that was the first step. I had the exam under anesthesia. They did what she wrote down in my medical record as a hymenectomy um, and said that she had basically made a couple of cuts and stitches and everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Everything was not fine. Uh-huh. The problem was definitely exacerbated at that point. I can imagine because now you've got stitches. In right. And got so healing. now there's very acute pain in the area contributing to kind of this cycle of, you know, this will hurt, this will harm me. This is, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know from your story, um, that you sought, you saw a number of other medical professionals who made things worse. Yes. Um, well-intentioned in most cases, medical professionals who were really using the information that was current, mm-hmm. um, you know, so pelvic floor, physical therapy, um, a whole range of things from things that make sense to things that really don't in hindsight, mm-hmm. But I was, I was ready to try anything and I felt a great sense of responsibility to mm-hmm. fix it, mm-hmm. you know, to stop it. <laughs> so yeah. I needed to, I needed to find the answer. And, um, it was about, I guess it was six years of that, just of kind of going from exhausting the limits of each practitioner mm-hmm. until I would go on to a different one. And how, and and this whole time penetration couldn't happen. Correct. Not at all. So, you know, and that had been the case leading up to marriage. I had a failed gynecological exam before I had Uh never been able to use tampons. 
I, again, just didn't have the framework to do the math, to realize that wasn't going to magically change Mm -hmm. when I got married. Mm -hmm. Um, I really had a very, I really had this sort of purity, prosperity gospel that we would get married and we brought our purity to marriage and it would just be rainbows and butterflies. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so I know you finally, you you heard about, I don't know if it was on YouTube or online somewhere you heard about a vaginismus clinic in New York. Yes. So I was doing the, the Google rounds, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like, there must be something out there in the great wide world that I haven't found. Um, some different approach or practitioner, um, a story of someone who sounds as bad as me, who has been cured. Mm -hmm. That's what I was always looking for. So late one night doing that, that thing, I came across the women's therapy center in New York, in Plainview, New York, and started reading the testimonials, pretty much um, exhausted every inch of their website. And there was a lot there. And I there was just a connection. I I read stories of people that really actually sounded like me that had been told the same things I had been told. And Mm -hmm. they claimed a 95% success rate, which it's at this point, it's a mix of skepticism. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I've been down this road before, but I had never, most most of the doctors um, that I had seen were very, tentative isn't, isn't the word I'm looking for, but they would say, I think it's this, and we're going to try these things and we'll see. There was mm-hmm. never a real sense of a familiarity and a comfort and a great level of experience with vaginismus. Even with a specialist I saw um, that had authored surgeries around these issues, women's sexual pain issues, someone that I thought this person is the expert he always seemed like we're going to throw this at it, but we'll right. see. So this right. was really, this was a big deal for me to find um, that voice coming from both the practitioners and the people who had been through the therapy. Right. Okay. So when you get to this, this clinic, how is this different from what, from what else you've tried? That's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> I, The funny thing about it is that it's not so much that it was totally different. It, some of the things, when I look back on it, it's almost like all of the dots connected from Mm -hmm. the other things that had been tried. So there is a physical therapy piece. There is a psychological piece. Mm-hmm. Um, they, what made them different, I think is the mind body approach, which now a few years later, I'm seeing become more normalized in general, mm-hmm. but they had, they had it that you cannot treat the mind and cure this. You cannot treat the body and cure this. You have to treat the whole person as a mind and a body simultaneously. Right. That's a big piece. There's a lot more to it, I think, in terms of their philosophy around it, um, as far as really wanting to power through to the cure and not do all of the extra work that should be done. And Mm. I've been doing much later as far as the why and the how, uh-huh. and let's, let's unwind all these ideas, but they were just very focused on, you can get to the other side of this. We will get to the other side of this. This isn't as big as you think it is, but not in a diminutive condescending way in right. an empowering way. And that really matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. And how long did it take? I love your story here. How long did it take to actually see results? It sounds crazy. And so I almost hate to say it for the person that's been out there struggling for six years, like I was, but it was, it was a two week program. So they have a couple of things. Mm -hmm. They have options. So you can, if you live locally to New York, you can do a more traditional go every 
two times a week for eight weeks, something Mm -hmm. like that. But they offer an intensive for people because it is so hard to find something like this. You know, it's, it's something you have to do in person, of course. And there are people around the world that are coming that can't live in New York for eight weeks to be cured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they developed this two week program where you spend a big chunk of time in the morning, a big chunk of time in the afternoon with both doctors and you power through it. Yeah. And that did it for you. It did. (laughs) And, And I'm telling you, I was truly, I was told by the last doctor that I saw, who was definitely the most qualified and experienced in the, in this area of the practitioners I saw that I was at the end of the line, that if you look at my medical history, everything had been tried. Mm-hmm. I was a, a hopeless case, so to speak. Um, but they really did have the key to it. And so it wasn't really a matter of time. It was a right. matter of understanding what was going on and getting to the other yeah. side of it. I love it. So what, so, um, I want, I want to get into two big things now. So I just, I wanted people to hear your story to understand how big a deal this was like picture Mm. the six years, not being able to have intercourse and seeking out all the help you can. And by the way, that's pretty amazing that you sought out help immediately. I didn't, I waited a couple Mm. of months. Like I was just so ashamed. So the fact that you did and advocated for yourself, like you, so you're already like, really out there and you're brave and you're trying and you're not getting anywhere. So, you know, so, so you were the kind of person who should have, you know, who should have gotten the help, but, but it didn't work. And then it finally did. Um, so now looking back, can you connect any of the whys? And I know that vaginismus is multifaceted and I, I really want people to hear that there's not one cause. Usually it's a whole bunch of things that a, a terrible cocktail mix of yes, yes. and you miss any one piece and you would have been okay, but you get mm-hmm. all this, this cocktail mix that make things bad. So we don't want to scare everybody who isn't right. married yet <laughs> thinking that if you have any one of these things, you'll get it. No, it's not right. like that. No. But what, what were some of the whys for you as you look back? Yeah. And, and that is you, you already said the preface that I would have given, which is that the doctors will always say that vaginismus can happen to anyone. They see mm-hmm. people from all backgrounds, all walks of life. And like you say, the perfect cocktail mm-hmm. somehow results. I, I've often said the perfect storm, you mm-hmm. know, that there were just, the weather was just right um, or just wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I do, I am able to see some of the whys. And I'll tell you, I I didn't spend any time on that really until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. And I've actually found this with some peers who have gone through the same thing where they get to the other side of it. And because you are in that shame, which I know you understand how pervasive that sense of self is, you want to kind of put it behind you. And it feels like you wait so long and work so hard to achieve normalcy. Mm-hmm. you're like, I, I don't want to even, I don't, it's behind me. Okay. So that said, I can see some of the whys now, and I'm, I'm actually really doing that work right now. So this is real time. So it will be flawed, <laughs> but I am coming to understand that the messaging that I was marinating in from a very young age about my body, about the world, you know, in psych 101, you talk about core beliefs, Mm -hmm. you know, am I safe and capable in the world? The messaging about that was a problem. I grew up believing that I was prey. Mm-hmm. And not because I come from an abusive background, because I come from a background with parents who really wanted to protect me from, mm-hmm. th- you know, from things that they had seen and experienced. So the messaging about safety, bodily autonomy, purity, 
my obligations in marriage also. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Again, you know, these are all just ingredients going into the cocktail. And then when it was shaken up on my wedding day, hello, vaginismus. Mm -hmm. Um, I think any one of those things that I'm talking about, you know, could be a rabbit hole you could really spend some time on. Mm-hmm. But those are the main things that I see. I had internalized the idea that I never really had charge over my body, mm-hmm. that it was going to, that it was an impurity or sin issue to be curious about or know my body, that I was kind of transferring. I can't think of a less offensive way to say it, but sort of transferring ownership of my body Mm -hmm. from my parents to Mm -hmm. my husband. (laughs) I mean, yeah, really when you peel it back, that was what I thought. And of course I was afraid. Yeah. Yeah. I remember speaking to uh, a young woman, a young millennial woman a couple of years ago who was single and was just thinking about waiting for marriage and purity. And she said that her elders had told her that her vagina belongs to her future husband that she hadn't met yet. And so she had to not touch it because it didn't belong to her. Oh my gosh. What if she never gets married? Like who currently (laughs) owns your vagina? (laughs) Literally. And, and it sounds, this is happening to me so often now that that sounds so nutty. But mm-hmm. that I would not have blinked. I would not mm-hmm. have blinked. When I was 14, 15, 16, I would have said, of course, you know, yes, mm-hmm. you are not your own. You know, it's this weaving together of ideas that don't go together. Like mm-hmm. I'm the Lord's, you know, I'm not my own. And then it gets woven together somehow with also my body is not my own, mm-hmm. but it can be my husband's. What? It confusing. It's confusing, but when you're marinating in it, you don't know that, you know, it, it's just your normal. And the way that I saw the world was that I did not own my body and that I was basically relinquishing rights, Mm -hmm. um, by getting married, even though I married a wonderful, safe man Mm -hmm. who didn't carry a lot of those toxic ideas Um, and, and didn't even know they were in there at that time, but that is something the doctors talk about is, you know, your, your no, um, in their book, a private pain, which I read before I went to the center, they talk about that, um, idea that, you know, if you don't feel like you can have a no, Mm -hmm. it kind of comes out somewhere. And for me, my, my vagina said, okay, I, I feel like I have no control and like I'm powerless. And so here we go. We're shutting the door. Yeah. Yeah. We have our power back. Yeah. Even though it actually made me feel a lot more powerless. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Because the mind and the body are connected. And when your mind is not protecting your sense of self, then your body will, even in ways that are unhealthy. (laughs) Yes. Which is, it is once you know, it's true, Mm -hmm. you see it everywhere. Yeah. Now, again, I do want to stress that, that, um, there are cases of vaginismus, which are not caused by psychological stuff. Like you can have bowel issues. Um, you can have sports injuries. You can have, it's not all. And and often those things are part of this cocktail. So you have the belief that you don't have body autonomy combined with taking gymnastics for 10 years, which did terrible (laughs) things to your posture. So like, it's not, we don't, we, we don't want to say that it's entirely a psychological disorder because it isn't right. (laughs) It's very multifaceted, but again, these things all contribute. If you had only had the gymnastics and not the body autonomy, you may not have had vaginismus. So right. Right. Yes definitely important and true. <laughs> yes. So in this whole thing, tell me about your husband, if you're comfortable talking about that, how did he handle this? He handled it very gracefully. He was also very young. As I said, we had both waited. He did not have the same ideas about my obligations towards him or anything. Um, 
which I feel extremely fortunate about, mm-hmm. I know that my story could have gone very differently. And I was aware of that. I'm aware of that now in a way that is, um, it's a really beautiful reality about him and about our marriage. At the time, I just, I felt a lot of shame and I felt mm-hmm. certain that I was going to lose him. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe that he was capable of being faithful to me without having everything mm-hmm. all the time. So thankfully he didn't believe that. And he <laughs> was always surprised when I would sort of hit a low point and just be sharing where I was, how I felt about it. He would always just kind of come back to like, I remember him saying, don't let a technicality define us. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw as a technicality. Thankfully, we still had an active sexual relationship and that was, that was mutually enjoyable. Um, but his stance towards it was just supportive. You know, he was supportive that I was doing all that I was doing to try to be cured. But at the same time, I don't want to say passive because that has a lot of negative connotation with it, but he was not, he did not feel or communicate a sense of urgency about it. Mm -hmm. He was there for what I was experiencing, but would often take me back to, this isn't who you are. This isn't what our marriage is. You are not a, you know, broken person. We are not a sexless marriage. We are us living our life. And this is a hard aspect of it. Right. That was his stance. So what do you do now when you see a woman getting married? Do you ever tell her, oh. look, if you, if it ever hurts, just give me a call or like, do you, like, <laughs> what do you do? Do you warn people ahead of time? Do you, cause I know I'm on this big mission so that people yes. know what vaginismus is so that they're not, they don't freak out. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and that is, that is my life's question right now. I, for a long time, spent a lot of energy and was very passionate about connecting with women who had vaginismus. So a lot of contacts from all over the world, just really amazing connections with women telling them, this is my story. You know, they're saying, oh, well, no, you don't understand. Mine is really bad. No, this is my story. (laughs) Like, please call the center. Please call the center. They're not paying me. I don't have any, like no Mm. one is selling anything here. I truly just want you to be whole. So that is something that for me felt like the fruit of this experience to help other women who had vaginismus Mm -hmm. get to the cure. And I've seen so many awesome stories of that happening. Um, mostly people that I've never met in person, but actually some peers and Mm -hmm. just where I saw a red flag or, a family member of mine who knows my story now seeing a red flag and saying, Hey, here's my daughter's number. Here's my sister's number. And that's been wonderful. But the place that I am now is what you're saying as people are getting married, especially young women who come from similar backgrounds, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate that. So recently I've had a couple of times where I've written them a card, not with the you know, the wedding gift at the wedding, but like <laughs> sent it to their brand new little address and said, Hey, I know that this is an exciting time. I also know there can be some learning curve and some struggles. I have a story. If you ever want to talk to me, like nothing is off limits. I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And like, we can go there. Yeah. And so I've done that, but I'm, I'm definitely sensing this urgency. It's kind of rewinding back further and further, right? So Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to women with vaginismus. I wanted to get them to the cure. I want to talk to young married women so they don't have to go years and years. But at some point, especially (laughs) as I'm starting to unwind these questions of kind of what set me up Mm -hmm. for vaginismus, I'm thinking, no, we need to earlier, we need earlier intervention, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I want to talk to the, the young women and the parents of the young women. And at this point, I'm, I've had very open conversations with young married women. 
but I'm trying to figure out how do we address the preteen and teenager parents, because it's Mm -hmm. the parents that create that culture mainly, you know, to try to do better (laughs) with this. And and it's not, parents often aren't being bad. It's not, you know, and that's the thing. They're not being malicious. They're not being mean hearted. Often it is just a protective mechanism and we don't realize how our messaging is getting across. Um, Okay. So you read the great sex rescue. What did you think of the Vaginus Miss stuff? Well, I loved the book. I am trying to get my husband to read it. He loves, he's interested and wants to, he's just got other things he's reading right now, but I'm like, you need to read it so we can talk about it. You will see so much of us in this story, you know? Um, and so I just gave it to a friend and said, you need to read this because I need to talk about it with someone. Um, yeah, I related to it. I just, I saw myself in it and, um, actually the segment that connected with me the most was the, um, do you have eyes only for me? I'm trying to think of the name of the chapter. Mm-hmm, the last one. Yeah. I yeah, think that's what it was yeah. Called. yeah. Because that was where I started to see all of the pieces come together for my mindset mm-hmm. and that there wasn't vaginismus being such a paralyzing experience for me wasn't just having a sexless marriage. It was believing that my husband wasn't capable of faithfulness and Mm -hmm. that I was responsible to carry our marriage sexually in every way from one Mm -hmm. end to the other, Um, from availability to attractiveness, to policing, to (laughs) all of that nonsense. Right. So, but yeah, the, the connection with, um, what I said to Jeff, to my husband about it was, you know, I have been kind of edging around corners of these ideas. It's when you see an idea, you know, it's there, but you don't quite have words for it. Mm -hmm. When I read the great sex rescue, it kept clarifying things that my life has been alluding to but mm-hmm. that I didn't quite have words for, you know, the connection with vaginismus, the mindset going into marriage, the, the, even outside my own story, the many, many women that I've seen in really tough situations in marriages where they, they didn't, um, they didn't end up with a partner who had yeah. understanding or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it just, I saw so much of what I've been observing for my whole life and trying to figure out clarified well in that book. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Now, Rachel, you wrote up your story and it was just so beautiful. And I'm going to link to that. Um, I think I linked to it in yesterday's post. So every, but I will link to it again in the podcast post here, but you can see the first bit of it in yesterday's post along with some of my story. Um, So go and follow that link and read more of Rachel's story. She's written it up beautifully. And I'm glad that I could inspire you to do that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm glad too. (laughs) And I just think the more that we talk about this, this is real stuff, you know, like we found 23% of women have experienced sexual pain, 7% to the point that penetration impossible and we never talk about it. It is more common than erectile dysfunction in couples under the age of 40, but we all know the word erectile dysfunction and how many of us knew the word vaginismus until you listen to this podcast. So, right. You know, let's get the word out there because it's, it's devastating. There's so much shame associated with it and there are treatments and, and people are getting better treatments all the time. And the more we speak out, the better they're going to get. So, yes. It needs to be a word we know mm-hmm. so that when we come across it, it's not a shock factor or a, Ooh. Yeah. 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 And so, and women don't blame themselves. So thank you so much for yes. sharing your story, Rachel. Um, Merry Christmas. And, and to you. <laughs> and, and I will send everyone to your website and best of luck as you start spreading the word as well. Thank you so much, Sheila. Well, We are at the final segment of the 2021 Bear Marriage Podcast, and I am sitting here in my yellow chair. Those of you on YouTube can see it, but this is actually where I do most of my work. 
I sit here. I know it's super bad for my posture. Um, I type here. I write my blog posts here. I do my social media and graphics here. And then every now and then I get up and get myself a cup of tea. So not very glamorous. I don't have an office. Um, I don't have a big team, but I sit here in my yellow chair and I do all of this work. This is where I wrote the surveys. This is where I wrote my book. This is just my life in this chair. And I thought I would sit here where I feel the most comfortable and talk about the Christmas story. When we think about the story of Joseph and Mary and going to Bethlehem, I've heard two different interpretations of how that went. And I think both interpretations can can tell us something or relate to some of the things that I've been processing as I think back on 2021. So let me tell the story the way we normally hear it. So Joseph and Mary are called to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus has taken a census of the whole Roman world and they have to go back to their hometown, to Joseph's hometown and be registered. My husband is from a small town called Campbellton in northern New Brunswick. His family grew up there. His mother is one of 14 siblings. His dad has a bunch of siblings. We They moved from Campbellton many, many years ago, but he still has cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody in Campbellton. We don't know them tremendously well, but if we ever go to Campbellton, which is where his family's from, there are always places to stay. There are always people who have the door open for us. In fact, our biggest problem is figuring out who to stay with because you don't want to offend anybody else. Very, very wonderful family. You think about Joseph and Mary, this woman who is about to give birth, and they're going back to his parents' family's home town. So there's probably cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles, and nobody has room for Joseph and Mary. And I think so often that when truth and light come into the world, it's disruptive. And it isn't always received well. And often the people who are bringing that truth and light into the world feel a great deal of rejection. And maybe that's something that you've been feeling this year as your eyes have been opened to some of the injustices that are being done in the evangelical world or the world at large, as you've become more frustrated at life and wanting Um, Just wanting to see people thrive and flourish and love, but see people not quite get it. And maybe you can relate to feeling like you don't really have a home, like you're not really welcomed. I know I can. There's another interpretation that I've heard recently about that story, which turns everything on its head. And I kind of like this interpretation. Apparently, and this is from an expert in in the ancient Middle East, the Hebrew word for in that we often interpret as in, (laughs) where there are different rooms where where guests stay, is the same word that would have been used for a guest room in someone's upper story or on their roof. And so when they arrived, it's more like there was no room in the guest rooms of all their family's homes. And so they stayed in the living room, which is where everyone would have kept the animals, which is why there was a manger. Um, and so in that, in that telling of the story, Mary may well have given birth with many family members around her to support her, which is actually quite nice to think about. (laughs) I think I kind of like that interpretation of it. And the whole idea of an innkeeper didn't actually come into Christian lore until more like 200 AD. But even in that story, you think about Joseph and Mary leaving their home where there was scandal because of this woman who was pregnant when she wasn't supposed to be. And from people who didn't quite get it, who didn't understand what was going on. God, God was about to come among them. The kingdom of God was at hand and people didn't see it. And Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem and then they stay, which is kind of interesting because the Magi didn't show up for a while. <laughs> the Magi from the East took a while to get there. And then after that, they flee to Egypt, where they become refugees. And then, of course, when they settle back in Israel, they settle in a new place in Nazareth, which is not where they were originally from. And so you have this family that left their comfort zone, that left their foundation, the place where they had grown up, where everybody that they knew was. And God sent them out to find a new family, a new home. And sometimes they felt like they didn't have one at all. And here they were bringing God's light and love and peace to the world, being the conduits for that. 
that's the Christmas story, isn't it? We want it to be pretty. We want it to be easy. We want it to be gifts and carols and love. But often those things come at a cost. And for Joseph and Mary, that cost was not really having a home. It was leaving what they knew. It was leaving safety behind. It was often running. It was being pursued. And I wonder if the feeling that their family was turning their back on them, from whichever version you look at, somebody turned their back on them. If that was worse than having the authorities upset at them, because sometimes it is worse to have those that you trust not understand what's happening than it is to have those that you didn't really think were allies anyway turn on you maybe even in a bigger way. This has been a very big year for us at the Bear Marriage Podcast and the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum blog. In March, The Great Sex Rescue is published. And it's done so well, and that's because of people like you. And we just want to thank you tremendously. This week, we got our first royalty statement. We actually made back our advance in the first royalty period, which is incredible. We're still not making much money from this book. The royalties are split three ways, and you don't make very much writing books, okay? So we're still making like less than half of minimum wage, considering how many hours we're putting into it. But it's selling, and it's selling to regular people. Counselors are getting it. You know, pastors of small churches are getting it. People are doing our free Bible study or our free book study. I'm sorry. Um, and that's so exciting. And I love seeing the new reviews on Amazon. And I love the direct messages that I, that I see on Instagram every day. And that's such an encouragement to me. But I got to tell you, there's a part of me, and I guess this was a very naive part of me, that thought that when the Great Sex Rescue was published, people in power would actually listen because now we had proof. Now we could show you definitively that, hey, the obligation sex message, that hurts women. That increases the vaginismus rate. We need to stop spreading it. And I thought that once we had proof that it lowers orgasm rates, that it lowers libido, that it increases vaginismus, that it decreases marital satisfaction, that people might look at that that the powers that be might reassess and say, okay, we probably need to course correct. I wasn't expecting everybody to, but I expected somebody to. Now, many, many pastors have, um, and I've heard from some of you. I know many of you have even used the Great Sex Rescue and Sermon series, and some of those are on YouTube, and that's amazing. Thank you so much. But I haven't seen other marriage ministries. I haven't seen big ministries, big websites, big Christian media. We've just had a big blackout on us. No one's talking about our book because they don't want to deal with it. And that was disappointing. Not a single one of the authors that we critiqued has apologized publicly. You know, we showed how, how dangerous the everyman's battle message was. Not a single one has apologized. And that was disappointing. It didn't hurt because <laughs> They weren't my allies to begin with, but it was disappointing. I think what did hurt more this year were the people that I thought got it, realizing that they didn't. And to see a lot of the marriage bloggers where I used to be in their community completely cut me off and actually say quite nasty things about our book. Um, and then especially to see Gary Thomas that I had considered a friend say that he would never ever publicly endorse Great Sex Rescue or say anything good about it, um, and that he did not agree with our work, primarily because of our take on lust. You know, we say that lust is not every man's battle, that all men do not struggle with lust, that this is not a lifelong battle for men, and that yes, you can respect women, and you can see women as whole people made in the image of God. And that the way that we get over lust is we learn how to respect each other as whole people made in the image of God. But he is sure that men are made with different brains, as he says in his book, Married Sex, where they are always ready to seize a, a sexual opportunity. Um, and he, he thinks that men um, are just made differently from women and that what we're saying about lust isn't true. And that was hard because I, he, he was someone that I had been so close to and we had worked so closely together and we'd done conferences together and, 
endorsed each other's books and, and he'd quoted me and I'd edited some of his books, or at least not the whole thing, but certain passages about women and sex. And I thought he got it. And the fact that he is still saying that you should send nude pictures to your husband so he doesn't watch porn. And I'm like, no, how can we still be doing this even after our survey shows this definitively? And I know he's read the book and that one hurt. That one and I've told him this personally too, but that one was like a knife in the heart. That one was, wow, this is what it feels like to lose your faith in, um, in the people that you thought you could trust and that, and that we're safe. <laughs> that was, that was really hard. And that one's had me reeling for a while. I couldn't talk about it. And this, this was going on last year as well, but I couldn't talk about it publicly because it hadn't gone public, but now it has. So, um, but that one was hard. And now as we wind down 2021, there's another group of people that are quite upset at us for similar reasons, but from the other side. They also don't like some of our new research, especially in our men's survey, that, that says that no, all men don't struggle with lust. It isn't every man's battle because they think this time we're being too easy on men. So, you know, one side thinks that um, we're being too hard on men by expecting them not to lust. And one side thinks we're being too easy on men by saying that not all men do. And it's like, how do you, I, I don't know what to do with that. I find that really difficult. Which brings me to another part of the Christmas story. It is not just that we are leaving behind that which we knew and that we are forging new relationships because when you find truth and love in a new way when that enters into the world is disruptive it's really disruptive and it's not easy for those who are in the middle of it but what we see after encounters with the savior after encounters with real truth with real love with real grace is we see new communities being formed that are based on acceptance and love and truth you think about the disciples, where you had a tax collector and you had fishermen, very different groups, and yet they traveled together. And in that group that traveled, there, there were also very wealthy women, um, wives of Roman officials. There were also former prostitutes, and they all got along and they all traveled together. They were all um, his followers and disciples. When you look at the early church in Philippi, the very first con um, convert was Lydia, who was a famous businesswoman, very wealthy, who dealt in purple, which I love. I love that. But then the next converts were the Philippian jailer and his family. And presumably they all went to church together. <laughs> Lydia and her whole household and the Philippian jailer and anyone else who, who came along. So this was really a breaking down of class divides of gender, of everything, and people saying, no, we just want to, to have real community. Last year, right before Christmas, Rebecca and I had a very big podcast um, that went really big on how we had felt quite homeless from church. And as we wind up this year, I'm not feeling quite as homeless. Um, we both have found churches that we're fairly sure we're going to try once the latest lockdown is over. I got to go to church once for one week and then everything closed down again. So, <laughs> oh, well, we've been, we, things have been quite locked down here in Ontario. And then when they were open, Rebecca was heavily pregnant. And so we were staying away and then suddenly we could go again and now things are locked down. But I, I do have some hope that we're going to find a good church community. And I do have some good friends in the area that I'll be getting together with. And so that's been a little bit better. I've been able to process some of that grief. Um, but it has been a really hard year. And I guess as we're winding up this year, I just want you all to know that, that I am in a state of transition. I do feel like God is taking me from my home to Bethlehem or to Egypt or to Nazareth, just on that journey where you're not sure where you're going to land and your support systems are all switching and everything's in flux and your allies are all switching. And the only thing that I can do is hold on to truth and hold on to love and pray that that is even more apparent in the year to come. We worked really hard in the last two years. Our survey was huge. We did it with basically no budget, with no university help. I mean, we did the kind of work that would get someone tenure at a, at a university and we did it without university help. We, we do have ethics approval. 
our data set is now at Purdue University. Uh, there's a number of peer-reviewed papers coming. We're speaking at the American Physical Therapy Association convention in February, which is, which is awesome. So physiotherapists are recognizing the benefit of our, our groundbreaking work on vaginismus, which is great. And I'm so excited about that. I still wish the church would, would recognize it, but I think what I've realized is the powers that be just aren't going to. And it is, isn't it interesting that at Christmas, the angels came to the shepherds and it was the shepherds who came to worship Jesus. It wasn't the leaders of the town. It wasn't even Mary and Joseph's relatives. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. It was the shepherds who didn't mean much. And I feel like we're all this ragtag group of people, me in my yellow chair, you sipping your coffee, watching this while you're doing dishes or whatever, <laughs> whatever you're doing. And we may not be the powers that be, but we matter. And God in his up down, upside down kingdom is bringing out a great change in the church. And I know that's hard to grasp sometimes when there's periods where you do feel disillusioned and you wonder if God's even there and can you even hear him. And I hope this Christmas as we think about journeys and as we think about having foundations taken away from us and comfort zones taken away from us, we can realize that often the biggest disruptions come when the biggest changes are happening and when God is the most real and when God is the most present. And so that's what I'm going to be meditating on this Christmas is even though I'm so tired and even though I'm not quite sure where we're going to land because the ground is still shifting from under us. I do believe that we have some great allies in you. Thank you so much for your encouragement. But most of all, I refuse to lose sight of that star. Because if I ever lose sight of that, I won't know where I'm going. And so I will cling to the truth that we're trying to find. <laughs> I will cling to the love of our Savior. And I promise that in the year ahead, I will keep doing that. And I will keep trying to help point you and your marriage to the God who cares. The God who loves. The God who saves. The God who restores. Not the God who has an obligation, shame-filled message for you. And I pray that one day the church will wake up to the love, the light, and the truth that God really does want to rain down on it. And now just a few announcements before we end it off for 2021. First, we are so close to a million downloads. So tell everyone you know to subscribe to the Bear Marriage Podcast. Um, download some episodes and re-listen to them. Help us get to a million. I think we're actually going to get there before the end of the year. And then we'll have our big celebration in uh, January. So that is exciting. There is still time to order some of our merch for Christmas. Hopefully, if you order today on Thursday, Thursday. I think most of it will still arrive. We have some amazing Be a Biblical Woman um, mugs and t-shirts and biblical womanhood and all kinds of stuff. So do check out our merch store for that. Support us on Patreon. Every little bit helps. Um, but most of all, I just want to say thank you. Uh, you guys are the biggest encouragement that we have right now. And I can't tell you how much you've meant to me all year. And I'm very excited to see what will happen in 2022. So Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we will see you again in January. Bye-bye.